Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of Lost in Science on your radio. This is 30 minutes of... Well, it is science to the extreme. My name is Claire, and with me on the show this week, we have Kat and we have Stu. Hello, you two. Hello. Hi. You two, obviously, science lovers to the extreme. Um, <laughs> and the reason why I keep saying extreme is that you, um, we have an extremophile show this week, don't we? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So what are your um, <laughs> extreme, extremophile, extreme stories that you've, you've brought for us this week? Stu, how about you? You know, people often talk about how Australia is the, you know, the, the driest inhabited continent uh, on Earth. And that has led to some extreme adaptations. But actually, the, the focus of my story is not particularly that it's an Australian thing but but we do have extreme environments and a lot of our plants particularly have had to adapt to the extremes of <laughs> conditions where they can grow in but plants are actually really good at adapting to extremes and there's really not that many places on earth that that don't have plants of some kind growing there and one of the things that they've had to adapt to in Australia and in other places in the world is salt Mm. So mm. the actual salinity that is around in soils in Australia and in other parts of the world um, can cause huge problems for plants and plants have had to adapt to to these conditions in various ways to deal with the amount of salt they have to uh, cope with. And it's actually really hard for plants to cope with high salinity. Um, but there's a, there's a bunch of... Um, uh, plants in the world called halo fights um, mm-hmm. and it's not when you're playing halo with your mates and you get into fights it's actually... I was just thinking Beyonce yeah yeah <laughs> me yeah. too I'm like mm, I didn't go video games so I wouldn't Beyonce yeah. um, that's fair enough too but halo fights are basically salt plants so they're plants that can live in naturally saline conditions and they've adapted to them and there's some of them that have Almost, almost magical powers of, of uh, survival in these harsh, extreme conditions. Extreme, love it. <laughs> uh, and Kat, how about you? What, what are your, what are your um, extreme stories for us today? Well, I'm going to talk about bacteria that live in extreme environments, <laughs> like volcanoes and underwater caves, and the top of Mount Everest. Brilliant. <laughs> I love an extremophile story. And are there as many environments as there are on this incredible world that we live in? There are bacteria that are living there, right? Oh, yeah. Bacteria can adapt to whatever we throw at them. You know, some eat oil because that's what we've given them or plastic or whatever. Totally. Exactly. (laughs) It's just a matter of of evolution. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, being 
pretty hardcore and, of course, <laughs> extreme, to the extreme. Well, stay tuned for our extreme stories on Lost in Science this week. On with the show. Now, as I said, uh, Australia's a very dry country, famously the world's driest inhabited continent. Sorry, listeners in Antarctica, you just still don't make the grade <laughs> at this point. Um, let's be honest, it's not very inhabited for its size. We've also got among the lowest population density in the world. Um, but this wasn't always the case. It wasn't always dry. And we know that the climate used to be a lot wetter in Australia and much of the interior what is now the interior was actually underwater at various oh. times um the yeah. east and west coasts were basically divided by a salty sea that mm. was there a long time ago and that water's receded but most of the salt well a lot of the salt didn't it's just still sitting there out in the out in the soils that's crazy uh, to think isn't it yeah, it is. Um, you know, if you if you wet parts of the soils in inland Australia, you get brine shrimp waking up. And oh my wow. goodness! Ancient brine shrimp. Yeah, doing <laughs> doing their sea monkey business. In... <laughs> wow, nature's sea monkeys. Yeah, well, that that's that's what the sea that's monkeys, what sea are, monkeys really. are. Yeah. So you can still find, and it makes it very hard to grow plants in some places. Um, I've actually heard, and you know, my horticultural background, I've heard people suggest using salt and vinegar as a herbicide to kill weeds, um, which which works, hmm. but it doesn't let you grow anything else there either because <laughs> you've put salt and vinegar in the soil and that's going to kill your plants, obviously. Great, um, if, it, great if you want to treat, your, treat yourself to some chippies at the same time there, right? <laughs> Try growing potatoes. Oh, with, yes. With the salt mm-hmm. and vinegar already applied. I don't know if that's going to work, but um, probably not. Uh, it's, lo- it's long been a vindictive thing for retreating armies to, do, to, to salt the earth as they left so that mm. nobody could grow anything um, when they sort of conquered the land again. Um, now, the basic reason salt is not a great thing is that plants need water and the salt in the soil can stop them absorbing it through their roots, which is... The only real way for most plants to absorb water is to suck it up through their roots. You, people, you know, water plant leaves and stuff. It doesn't really work. It's all got to go on the ground and get sucked up by the roots. It's something like tiny, tiny fraction they can absorb other ways. They're literally designed for absorbing it through their roots and evaporating out the top. Now, this process happens through the magic... I shouldn't say magic. It's the science, but it is, it is quite magical. The magic of osmosis, which is... Based on salt concentrations, though plants don't necessarily have high concentrations of, you know, sodium chloride in them, um, they do have other dissolved substances. The main, the big player in this in this osmosis game is sugar, uh, but also lots of other things can help them do that, do their thing. Um, in chemistry terms, a salt is a substance that can be dissolved in water, 
which covers a huge number of chemicals, including mm. sodium chloride, which we generally call salt. It covers sugars. It covers a whole range of plant nutrients, which wow. is also how plants absorb most of those too. They've got to be dissolved in the water they absorb through the roots. So this whole process is, you know, what keeps plants going. Um, it works by the tendency, osmosis works by the tendency of water to move from an area of low salt concentration to an area of high salt concentration. In other words, more salt absorbs water better than less salt. Mm. Pretty straightforward. If you have more salt on one side of a permeable barrier, permeable barrier, like a cell membrane, water moves from the side with the least salt to the side with the most salt. And right. if you just let it do its thing, it'll equal out. You'll end up with even amounts of salts on both sides or even amounts of water if you want to look at it that way. Um, but obviously, plants moves, water moves from the outside of plant root cells to the inside where there's more dissolved stuff and then the plant moves it around inside the plant as well and there's a whole lot of other stuff going on um, all sorts of processes but osmosis also plays an internal role in the plant so this is great when the salts are at higher levels inside the plant than outside the plant if they're not it works the other way too so if there's too much salt in the soil it sucks the water out of plants and they dry out and you don't get good plant growth or you don't get any plant growth in some places. Now we call this soil salinity in places with saline soil. It's very difficult for plants to grow unless they're adapted to the conditions. And there are large areas of soil salinity in Australia, which are natural, but there are obviously other areas where it's been caused by human activity. Um, in places where we irrigate crops, which is huge areas of inland Australia. There's the, you know, the Murray Valley and the Murrumbidgee where they irrigate lots of areas. Um, lots of salts dissolved in soil water deeper in the ground get brought in contact with plant roots because the water table rises and brings the salts up with them because you keep pouring more water on the top mm. to irrigate your plants. And eventually that can cause salinity in those areas. There's also something we have in Australia called dryland salinity, which is caused by a rising water table in low-lying areas that's actually caused by deforestation on higher ground. So more water uh, brings up the water table in the low-lying areas and brings the salt with it, and then we end up right. with salinity in those areas. Mm. So, you know, chopping down trees and pumping water into crops is causing problems with salinity yeah. because, hey, we've disrupted the natural balance of soil, water and salts and things. Um, so there are areas where salts are naturally saline, uh, so soils, sorry, are naturally saline and areas near the sea, for example, tend to have higher salt content than soils further inland. Um, in higher rainfall areas, salts have been washed away over time, so they've reduced that that pressure. Um, but for plants that have evolved naturally in saline soils, there are many, many adaptations that allow them to survive. And these plants are called halophytes, which basically translates as salt, pan salt plants, not salt pants. That's a different <laughs> thing altogether. Um, Salt plants, but so the, the, the sort of the opposite or the, the sort of um, non-salt tolerant plants are called glycophytes, which is weirdly like, that basically means sugar plants. 
So there's plants that can't tolerate salt, and that's nearly everything we grow to eat. And there's plants that do tolerate salt, which grow in places where we can't grow anything to eat. Um, if only we could eat the salt plants, we'd be doing okay, maybe. Um, so we need to adapt too. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, they, they are talking about using some of the halophytes to, you know, produce crops for biofuels in areas you can't grow anything mm. else and things like that. So there's possibilities that we could use them for something like that in the future. Uh, but they have different ways of dealing with the salt they absorb from the soil. Many of, it, many of them store it in some way, which like locks it up. Um, now that means when the plant breaks down, it goes back into the soil. So that doesn't actually solve any problems. But if you harvest it and remove it, you can remove the salt as well and make it more suitable for growing plants that can't cope with the salinity. Um, so they have been used in that way to repair salinity in some areas. Now, an interesting plant that I came across and got me thinking about halophytes was a plant that was a subject of research published in October in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science uh, that uses salts for another reason as well. The plant is called Tamarix aphyla, which means roughly means leafless tamarisk that's you know it's, it's the plant is a kind of tamarisk so it doesn't have any leaves it's very very salt tolerant in the middle east uh in the middle eastern desert it's widespread throughout the desert it absorbs salt from the soils and excretes the salts on the surface of its stems and it makes these salt crystals which then absorb water from the atmosphere wow and then and then that salt, uh, that water is then available to the plant for absorption. So mm. the salt crystals mm. don't stick around. They actually fall off the plant and blow away. So the plant gets to reduce the amount of salt in the soil, increases the amount of water it's got available for the plant. Even when the humidity is quite low, and this is something they've known for years, is that there's plants that can produce salt crystals and then they uh, absorb water and then the water's available for the plants but it usually has to be quite high humidity and in the desert it's not so <laughs> these plants have actually um, adapted the ability to absorb sodium chloride which is our regular table salt some gypsum which is calcium sulfate that they absorb from the soil and they also absorb dilithium sulfate from the soil and then they've what what they've actually found is it's the it's the lithium that is uh, that gives them the ability to absorb water at very low hum humidities, much lower than the other salts that are present. So the researchers are hoping to be able to use this knowledge, use this understanding um, that they may be able to develop water extraction technologies for dry, low humidity areas um, in the future and you know there's lots of people living in these areas who need water so they're hoping to maybe harness this this bio inspired you know discovery that that lithium is actually better at absorbing water in low humidities than other salts as well um, probably not in time for our much uh, promoted impending long hot um, El Nino summer that we're supposed to be moving into but Look, it may be a summer salt in the future. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm 
I'm a scientist. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. I'm going to talk about some bacteria that love extreme environments. <laughs> Yahoo! Um, and Woo! And what we can learn from them as well, um, because it's surprising what we can learn from them. Who would have thought just studying some bacteria in volcanoes or in hot springs would have led to PCR? (laughs) Polymerase chain reaction. So it's a household name now, PCR, thanks to COVID. Um, But essentially what the actual thing does polymerase change reaction is amplifies the amount of DNA that you have in a sample. So it's great for medical diagnostics, but it's also really good when you're thinking about forensics and you want to amplify like a little bit of DNA in the blood and you want to actually sequence someone's DNA. I, so it's I, very handy. I used to use it in research as well. We'd find, you know, fungi and then we'd try and identify them just similar to like forensic the way the mm. forensic people use it. You get a little bit of DNA and you want to make lots and lots of copies of it so you can see what it actually is and it's not just... You, you lose it in the in the, in the the noise of DNA if you're taking soil samples and things. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing technology. Yeah. yeah. It is. Like, yeah, as, as you point out, it's not just for humans. We can sequence, you know, pretty much most organisms' DNA because of PCR now. Um, so at the core of PCR is an enzyme called TAC polymerase. So that's the P in PCR. And that's able to amplify DNA at high temperatures. And essentially it comes from someone, a, a professor, Thomas Brock of Indiana University in 1966, was studying microbes in the Yellowstone hot springs. And that's mm. sort of at the top of a, a volcanic hotspot. And the hot springs and the geysers sort of sprout out this scalding water that is up to 95 degrees Celsius. And so everyone sort of thought, ah, nothing's going to live there. You yeah, know, you would get third degrees burns if you touch that. So for a long time, everyone thought that these were inhospitable um, conditions and, and thought that they were quite incompatible with life. But, but... To Thomas Brock's surprise, he discovered some thin pink threads of bacteria living in one of the hot springs at temperatures above 80 degrees Celsius. And that was the first organism ever found to be able to withstand such extreme conditions. And then he took some of the samples back to the lab and isolated the bacterium called Thermus aquaticus, or TAC for short, and it's named after the hot water. So... The first extremophile to be found in the 1960s ended up being the extremophile that helped us with PCR. Well, at least extremophile in terms of temperature. Yeah, yes. Wow. Mm. That's that's Mm -hmm. so cool. It's amazing. Um, So he started investigating its properties because it was unusual Mm. and found that it can tolerate being heated right up to 95 degrees without any negative effects. And then like it was sort of put to the side. But then in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, people started to develop this idea of, of PCR. And it works by you separate the double-stranded DNA helix into two separate templates, and then you can use DNA polymerase to amplify or or copy out from that template to go from one strand to two strands, and you keep doubling every single time. 
But this requires you to heat up the DNA to even split the two strands because DNA likes to be double stranded. So they were using DNA polymerase from E. coli bacteria because it's easy to get E. coli, but you have to add heaps more DNA polymerase every single time you do the heating process. And so it was just a bit cumbersome. And so when they were like, hang on, there was that bacteria that could survive at that temperature. And they, they were like, all right, let's take the tack polymerase, that DNA polymerase from that particular bacteria. It was a game changer. You add it in, you only add it once. It can be used in every single round of, of DNA amplification. So you can get an exponentially great amount of DNA just in a short span of time without having to constantly mm. add ingredients to your reaction. So from there, We've got amazing innovations, including actually being able to sequence human DNA, as well as genetic tests and characterizing entire microbial communities and even some Nobel Prize winning winning science. So (laughs) all from this one bacterium that was just living in a hot spring. Oh, so what a what a beautiful like match of human innovation, but with mm. just like the coolest bacteria, I mean, the hottest bacteria, but like, (laughs) well, the coolest bacteria living in the hottest conditions, just like, yeah, incredible story. Yeah. So I I now want to talk a little bit about other extremophiles because you think, you know, if all of that came from one bacteria, what else can we learn? Right? (laughs) Totally. So if I've convinced you that we should be studying microbes in very secluded and intense, extreme places on earth, Um, There's a new study that was just published late last week um, looking at microbes in the Yucatan Peninsula in in Mexico. So looking particularly in the underwater caves. So with help from experienced underwater cave diving um, teams, the researchers constructed the most complete map to date of the microbes living submerged in these sort of cave labyrinths. So when I say a map, It's not just which bacteria are living there, it's where. And they can Mm. sort of point out in the water and in certain small hollows of the caves, like what is living where. And after analyzing these samples, the researchers sort of realize that there's quite a a rich system of, of diversity, but there's also this organization into distinct patterns. So if you think about... Uh, you know, your stereotypical, uh, in, in the movies at least, you've got like a high school lunchroom with, you know, all the cliques. That's kind of what we've got with mm. microbial communities. Um, they tend to sort of cluster into well-defined cliques. But there's one family of bacteria, Comomonodesii, which acts as kind of like a popular social butterfly. So this particular bacterial family appears at nearly two thirds of, I guess, the, you know, the cafeteria tables. So in in lots of the different communities, suggesting that they're pretty vital to a broader um, bacterial ecosystem. They're needed in, in a lot of different places. Plus, the researchers also found that a sinkhole with a surface opening, so that allows sunlight to spill in, had the most microbial communities. So perhaps it's kind of that that warmth from the sunlight, as well as the deeper down cooler waters that allow for lots of different layers of distinct niches. So that was really cool. Um, and it's really interesting that the bacteria that live there in those caves is very different to the water in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. So the bacteria and, and what microbes you get in each are quite different. And it's very different from cave to cave, from shallow water to deep water. 
Um, So there's this amazing diversity. And speaking of amazing diversity, now I'm going to climb from the underground caves full of water to the frozen caps of the tallest peak in the world, Mount Everest. Wow. You'd expect that the microbes there are pretty hardy, as are the people who actually attempt to climb (laughs) Mount Everest. But in a study published earlier this year, uh, all the adventurers who, who go are seeming to leave behind a frozen legacy of microbes in their path. Um, and, and these microbes can withstand these harsh conditions at high elevations, and they, they even lie dormant in the soil for decades after people have left. And the researchers weren't surprised to find microbes left by mm. humans. Like, you know, we leave traces of ourselves. But the microbes were everywhere, even in the air, and they've like blown around and they've landed some distance away from wow. any nearby camps or trails. So they're even in the more isolated spots. But what the researchers are most impressed by was that certain microbes, which have evolved to thrive in warm and wet environments like our noses and our mouths, were resilient enough to survive in dormant states in very harsh conditions in the cold. So somehow they've, you know, turned into extremophiles, even though they usually like to hang out on us. Um, And it was really interesting that most of the microbial DNA sequences or or most of the microbes that they found were similar to the the hardy or the extremophiles that we already know are in the Andes or Antarctica. But there there was a new one that they found could even withstand like these extreme levels of cold and UV radiation, because that's a big thing that you have to think about high up as well, the UV. So even things like Staphylococcus, which is very much on us and not regarded as an extremophile, one of the most common skin and nose bacterias, and another bacteria, Streptococcus, which is in our mouths, it was found just lying around in the snow and not killed by that UV light and the cold temperature and the low water availability. So yeah, it's really interesting that our impact is to leave lots of microbes behind as well. Um, It really just gets me thinking about how, you know, when we travel to other planets, how Mm. difficult it's going to be to, to try to, you know, keep microbes out of there or, you know, keep that environment from not being colonised by Earth life. It it might have already been done. I don't know. Yeah. And if we take them there, what's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They'll just turn into extremophiles on Mars. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight@gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR 
or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us. Get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.